Welcome to Blackhawk Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team here uh, at Blackhawk Church. Welcome to all of you who are watching uh, online, those who are watching at one of our locations, Blackhawk Fitchburg or Blackhawk Downtown. Hey, a special uh, shout out to those of you who are college students uh, who maybe uh, have come back for the next semester. Let's hear it uh, for all the college students uh, at Blackhawk Church. Yeah, we love you guys. Awesome. Hey, so we're in a series right now called Under Construction, and uh, Under Construction is, um, it's, it's about those times when you, um, you've constructed uh, your faith, your belief in God, uh, your belief in the Bible, and then um, something happens in your life, and you like poke holes in what you believed about God or the Bible, and that's called deconstruction. And then uh, hopefully someone comes around you and in community, you kind of reconstruct, and you actually end up something better than you actually constructed. There's a process, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, and it kind of happens to all of us uh, around all kinds of different areas at different times in our life. And today's uh, topic is a topic where a lot of deconstruction happens to different kinds of people, and today we're going to talk about science and faith. And I am super excited about uh, this uh, talk because, well, for lots of reasons, but uh, basically, uh, this is kind of my story. This is my story. And I feel like I've been around Blackhawk for a long time, and I feel like I've told my story so many times that you guys all know it, but the teaching team said, yeah, and a lot of people don't know your story, so you should tell your story. So here is uh, my story, so don't fall asleep. So when I was in middle school and high school, I went to a church that was a Bible-believing church, wonderful, really wonderful people, godly people there, and uh, they loved on me, and it was just a great place. I enjoyed being there. But also when I was in middle school and high school, I kind of fell in love with biology and the whole uh, outdoors and, you know, everything that way, and I just, wow, just couldn't get over the fact, you know, collect leaves and bugs and all that kind of stuff, so I just kind of fell in love with that, and while I was in high school biology, I learned about evolution, and I, I, I made the mistake of going to, uh, back to the Bible-believing church and talking about evolution, yeah, 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 so um, that didn't really work very well. And uh, basically, the kind of the message, no one, there wasn't a sign. There was no sign on the door that said, we don't believe in science here. But there was kind of a vibe, a vibe. And, it, and, I, and I got the feeling, I don't talk about that here. So I, I got that real clear. Because it's like, you know, we, we don't believe in that. It's atheists and, you know, there's no God and all that. So we don't talk about evolution here. I thought, huh. So instantly in my teenage mind, there was kind of like two different worlds. There's like, you know, there's like a church world and there's like other world. So, well, what did I do with that? Well, I went off to college. And what happened when I went off to college? Yeah, I kind of left church world completely and all of that. And what do you think I majored in? Biology. Minored in chemistry. And man, I just couldn't get enough of... Phrases like ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny and things like that. I just love to, love to say those kind of things to my Christian friends. You know, what does that mean? It basically means there's deep reasons why we were all tadpoles in our mother's wombs. And it would bother Christians. So I would do that kind of, I was the kind of person you didn't want to be around. Maybe I'm still like that, actually. 
So at any rate, um, all of that was kind of my life. And then I met this man who was a reporter. His name is Mike. I was also a gymnast. Mike covered gymnastics. Mike was older, pretty smart guy. And Mike saw right away that in my mind, there was a conflict between uh, science and faith. And they just didn't get along with each other. So what did Mike do? Mike introduced me to a scientist who was, had a PhD in microbiology from Penn State University. He worked for a company there called Pfizer in the town that I lived in. And he's also a committed Bible-believing Christian. I had no category for this guy. I had no category for him. Because I basically had, well, I got a slide uh, for this. Two worlds. There was kind of church world. I follow my faith. I can't trust science. And then university world. I follow science. I can't trust my faith. In my mind, in my world, I had this conflict thesis going on. They they were just in conflict with each other. And this scientist, who was also a Bible-believing believer, he, it, to him, they were like this. No, 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 they go really well together. I had never met anyone like that at all. So I was able to go through a kind of a reconstruction process. And heck, I think I've been on that reconstruction process the rest of my life. That's kind of my story. Now, some of you who are here uh, or are watching can totally relate to that uh, story. You have bought the conflict thesis that science is over here, faith's over here, and they are enemies of each other. It's a very powerful thesis, and it's a thesis that just won't die. But uh, my job today is to kind of help uh, blow up that myth. There's actually a, a way for science and faith to actually be friends uh, with each other. And I would love to talk about this all day long. The biggest problem I have with a talk like this is that clock right back there. Because <laughs> I could talk on and on and on. But let me just give you a, a kind of a couple of principles uh, that as Christ followers might be able to help us as we try to link these two things uh, together. The first principle uh, is this, is that God has given us uh, two different kinds of books. God's written two kinds of books, the book of nature and the book of his word. And if you want to turn to uh, Psalm 19, this really helped me out a lot, this principle of this two-book thesis. This is not my idea. This goes all the way, this goes back hundreds of years to a guy named Bacon. But um, in Psalm 19, we read this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So it's a fantastic uh, verse. Basically, when you uh, look up, the skies are telling you about God's glory, and they're telling you about what God can do. I mean, you just think, look up. Okay, that's what, what can God do? Look up. Okay, that's what he can do. And this is what I'm calling uh, the book of nature. These are things that God has created, and nature is always speaking. It's always speaking to us. When the skies speak to us, uh, they speak differently. And the next few passages tell us that. Day after day, they pour forth speech. 
Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So they're constantly speaking to us. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So it's nonverbal communication. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. That is, it's universal communication. This is the book of nature. God has written it. And it's always speaking to us. But then there's another book. And that's the book of God's word. The same psalm talks about that. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. So this is the book of God's word. And it's wise and it's wonderful. And we can learn about God from it. But immediately somebody will push back and say, yeah, but what if those two books are in conflict with each other? And I would just say, well, it's an apparent conflict. It's not a real conflict. A conflict like that happened uh, about 500 years ago when a a believer whose name was Copernicus, a brilliant polymath, uh, wrote a book. And at the end of his life, it was published. And uh, basically, uh, Copernicus was saying um, that actually the earth is not uh, stable and in the center of everything. The sun is in the center. The earth is actually moving thousands of miles an hour. And this sounds like craziness uh, to everybody because obviously you go outside, it doesn't feel like the earth is moving and it looks like the sun is actually moving. And the church held that no, 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 no. The earth is in the center. It's firm and it's established. The Bible teaches that. The sun goes around the earth, not vice versa. Can't listen to the scientists. They don't know what they're talking about. Here's a verse from Psalm 19 that kind of implies that. Psalm 19, verse 4b. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So it looks like the Bible is clearly teaching that the sun rises and goes around uh, the earth. And there's other verses in the Bible that talk about the earth is firm and established. And people like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Melanchthon taught, no, no, no. The Bible teaches the earth is firm and established. The sun goes around the earth. I use this as an example because I think most of us today would disagree with that. Say, no, no, no. The sun, we go around the sun, even though we can't feel like we're going around it. It looks like it's going around. So this leads me to the second principle. The second principle is this. The Bible is not written in the language of science, and science is not written in the language of the Bible. Uh, Take uh, this beautiful uh, sunset, for example. Beautiful sunset. How would a scientist describe that sunset? Well, he or she might say something like this. A red sunset happens when the electromagnetic radiation from the sun undergoes a Rayleigh scattering as it passes through the atmosphere low on the horizon, causing the shorter blue wavelengths of light to be scattered away while leaving the longer red wavelengths to reach the observer. I have observed hundreds of sunsets with my wife. Hundreds. What if I put my arm around my wife and I looked at the red light reflecting off her face and hair 
and said to her, honey, I love the Ray Lee effect that's happening right now. Can you imagine me saying that? Well, my wife actually can't imagine me saying that. (laughs) Trust me, I've ruined thousands of romantic moments in my life. It would be better, actually, to say it in the words of the psalmist and to talk about the son like this. Psalm 19, again, it's like a a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejecting to run his court. It rises at one end of the heavens, makes a circuit to to the other. Now, I know that's talking about sunrise, not sunset, but my wife and I don't watch that many sunrises together. Truthfully, we watch sunsets. But that's a metaphor about the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber to do what? (laughs) He's coming out and he's looking for his bride and nothing's going to stop him. Nothing's going to stop that guy. Or it's like a champion, not an average runner, but a champion running his course, always runs the course. Always faithful to do that. Now, is the Bible wrong? No. But the Bible doesn't speak in the language of science. It speaks in a different kind of language. It uses metaphor, uses poetry. Both are right. But different kinds of language. Science isn't written in the language of the Bible. The Bible's not written in the language of science. That principle really helped me a lot. The Bible doesn't speak to all kinds of things that we would want uh, it to speak to. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot of things about what we want to know, all kinds of things. But it does tell us what we need to know about God. The Bible doesn't tell us about photosynthesis, doesn't tell us about protons, doesn't tell us about penguins. It, um, it does tell us that God loves us and that we are all created in his image. Oh, what about that, Pastor Chris? Created in his image. What, what, what about like evolution and Adam and Eve and all uh, that kind of thing? And these are the kind of issues that I kind of was wrestling with, still kind of wrestle with. So um, this is what I'm going to do and say about this. It may frustrate some of you. The purpose of the day's talk is not to answer those questions. But the purpose of the day's talk is to tell you that these two worlds can live together in the same place, in the same person. And we have provided a website. We have resources on our website. And I have a lot of resources on there. Many of those have been very helpful to me. And if you're interested in those kind of questions, go there. Knock yourself out. What we're trying to say today is that the conflict thesis is false. And there is a possibility for both science and faith to be friends with each other. And what helped me the most, I thought might help you when I actually met a scientist who was also a believer. So that's what I want to do today with the rest of today's talk. I want to introduce you to two Blackhawkers who are professional scientists, and they work downtown at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Why don't you welcome to the platform Dr. Isabella Stu Farska and Dr. Rick Lindroth. Here they go. All right. Super. Thanks so much for being here. 
And uh, I really uh, appreciate hearing your laughter, Rick, when I said I've ruined a thousand <laughs> romantic moments. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. yeah, I'm a good friend, right? Yeah, there you go. That's right. So uh, I know both of you, uh, but why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. And Isabella, we'll start with you. Sounds great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. So uh, let me start with my uh, family. Maybe we can put a slide there. And so this is uh, my, my family. My husband, Dane Morgan, is also a professor in material science, in the same department, material science and engineering. Uh, we have two twin boys, David and Daniel, who are about to turn eight. Um, Let me just stop for a second. So you're, you're married to another professor and you guys work in the de- same department. How's that working for you? <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, there you go. All right, that's good. Strong marriage. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's, maybe it's not. We should just... <laughs> <laughs> He's coming to the second service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Well, anyway, let me tell you a little bit about material science and engineering. So uh, if you are from Madison, uh, perhaps uh, you have been uh, passing by our building many times. So this is this building, Circle in Red, a two-story building by University Avenue. So University Avenue is at the bottom and the top right is the uh, Badger Football Stadium. So it might be a familiar site to many people, but uh, I'm guessing that many people might not be familiar what actually happens in these buildings. What do material scientists do? And so as material scientists, we design new materials and we uh, optimize existing materials to make useful stuff. Uh, and uh, in fact, most modern technologies are enabled by and then require innovation in materials. So I was going to uh, show you today just a couple of examples where materials design is critical to new technologies. So one of them is modern computing and the other is uh, the energy sector. Um, so let's start with the computers. Any piece of electronics that you have, your, your phones, your laptops and computers, uh, is built using computer chips. So a chip is a piece of uh, semiconductor material that has ele- uh, electronic circuits embedded in them. So you see there a person on the left holding um, a wafer that was manufactured to contr- contain several hundred chips. And each of these chips contains about 130 billion transistors. So <laughs> a transistor is a tiny little switch that does the basic computing. And 130 billion is more than 15 times the number of people currently living on Earth. So it's a huge number of transistors that uh, we can pack on a chip because of the materials engineering that was done. And in fact, this is how computers are getting faster because we can make them transistors smaller and smaller and put more of these transistors on the chip. But now we can't do that indefinitely. So in order to keep um, advancing the computing power and speed, uh, we're at the point we need to invent entirely new materials and design them and manufacture them for these transistors. So we do them by basically building uh, materials one layer of atoms at a time. We can control and manipulate materials at the level of individual atoms. And you actually can see these atoms. So the image on the bottom right is an actual image of atoms of two semiconductor materials sandwiched together. And it's been taken using this extremely powerful electron microscopes like the ones showing on the top right. So these are the types of microscopes that we have on campus that we used to study materials. So materials are critical to this technology. Let me just quickly give you another example from energy sector. And I'll picked, uh, I picked the nuclear energy because this is related to my own research. And so the two images in the middle. Uh, many people might have heard recently lots of news about fusion. And the U.S. government is planning to build the first pilot fusion reactor that it will produce electricity by the year of 2040. 
And what fusion is, is basically the type of nuclear reaction that takes place inside of our star, inside of the sun. And it releases an enormous amount of energy. This energy is released toward the Earth, and that's what warms our planet. And so we can now safely reproduce the same kind of nuclear reaction inside of a reactor. So this is inside of this purple donut there. And as you can imagine, uh, that requires the materials that are, these reactors are built from to withstand very high temperature and lots of radiation. So that's one of the things we work on. And in fact, the success of the future fusion program depends on the ability of the community to develop these kinds of materials. So materials are critical. Uh, hopefully, I'll just give you a glimpse of what we do as a material scientist. But if you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to visit our website and I put up a QR code as well. Okay. Great. Question, how many of you learned something about material science? <laughs> Show of hands. Uh, and they, there you go. I'll awesome. See. And there will be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> oh, there you go. Rick, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. We moved here in 1985, initially as a postdoc, and I had the very good fortune of being asked to join the faculty a couple of years later. And we actually attended Blackhawk Church our first weekend in town, back when it was on Blackhawk Avenue, and 100 people attended. So we've been here a long time. My family uh, is my wife, Nancy, and my daughters, Chrissy and Nikki. And the picture on the right was taken uh, just last fall, which includes their husbands, whom they met here in the intern program. So woo uh, for the intern (laughs) program. And uh, our three grandchildren. Nancy served on staff here for over 20 years as well. I mean, mean, she didn't just serve on staff. She was the chief of staff. Mm -hmm. uh, And so she had a very powerful position here. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Our our dinner conversations are much more boring now, Chris, since she doesn't work for you. Yeah, that's right. What's wrong? (laughs) How can we fix Chris? Basically, yeah. Yeah. So so I'm an ecologist. And every time I say I'm an ecologist, I feel this need to explain what ecology is because... Most people have some basic understanding of what they think ecology is, and most people are wrong, I'm sorry to say. So um, ecology is a science. It's not environmentalism. It's a science that studies how the natural world works, especially the interactions of organisms with other organisms and with the uh, physical planet around them. And as an ecologist, my research group studied forest ecosystems, We were primarily interested in these complex molecules like you see there on the the lower right and how various genetic factors and environmental factors shape the chemistry of the plants. Environmental factors like UV radiation or increased temperature, climate change, drought, high levels of CO2. How did that uh, shape the chemistry of the plant? And then how did that influence food webs, ecosystem processes like nutrient cycling and carbon storage. And my research group consisted, as do most research groups, of postdocs and graduate students and undergraduates. And we did work in the outdoors and natural environments, indoors in the lab and in greenhouses. I also did a six-year stint as an associate dean for research, basically kind of like the chief research officer of a $100 million research operation per year. And I've had a long-standing interest in science and faith. I just retired about a year ago, but a uh, little uh, known fact, there is a new center emerging in town called the Lumen Center. It's like a sister organization to Upper House. Many of you know about Upper House. And the Lumen Center's mission is to study the interface of Christianity and culture. So I have a part-time job 
studying science and faith under the Lumen Center. Awesome. So uh, we're talking about a conflict between science and faith. Have you guys ever experienced that, like, uh, personally? Isabella? No, I have not. <laughs> and uh, what's interesting, I think, about it is that I grew up in Poland, and I was raised uh, in a Christian faith. And growing up in the church, I actually never heard messages about science and faith being un- incompatible with each other. It was after I came to the U.S. for grad school that I realized that uh, uh, some people here in the United States have a different perspective, but personally, I have not experienced okay. it properly. All right. Rick? Uh, like you, as a biology undergraduate and um, being involved with a Christian campus organization that took a very kind of strict, literal view of the Bible, I had some issues with, with evolution, significant issues as an undergrad. I went on to graduate school, was mentored by an associate pastor in the church we attended and learned how to interpret um, the Bible better than I had before. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Chris, but there's this uh, the phrase that goes something like, the Bible was not written <laughs> to us, oh. but it was written for us. I need a pen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Write that down. Okay. All right. Yeah, go ahead. You can yeah. feel free to use that if you want. I'll qu- we'll, we'll quote you. Awesome. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, you know... <laughs> I should just say, Rick and I are pretty good friends. That's why we're kind of, so sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sorry. Uh, there is this popular narrative in Christian circles that scientists are really antagonistic towards people of faith and that it must be really difficult to be a scientist, like a Christian in the world of science. I've spent my entire career at one of the world's premier research institutions. I've traveled all over the world. I've worked with scientists all over the world. And I really haven't found that to be the case. Now, that could be uniquely my experience, and I want to be very clear to say that, but I've just not found that to be the case. And I actually find science and faith to be very complementary. Science is really good at telling us about what is, but really not so good telling us what ought to be. And that's where our values and our ethics come in as they're informed by our religious and spiritual views. So I see them as really nicely complementary. Uh, this goes along with that. Um, how has science informed your faith, Isabella? Mm-hmm. So as a scientist, uh, I'm extremely, com- with a scientific training, uh, become extremely comfortable asking questions. And when we encounter evidence uh, or new information that is inconsistent with our current understanding, uh, we just realize, I don't, I don't quit my job, I don't leave science, I just I realize I need to revise my understanding and sometimes I realize that actually nobody knows the answers. Like at this stage of knowledge, maybe there are sort of different pieces of evidence that we don't know exactly how to reconcile, and I just have to hold them in tension mm. until a later time. But so I do the same with my faith. I am um, very comfortable asking questions. I think mm. you know part of this training, uh, and I revise my faith, how I think about God and how God interacts with people many times. And honestly, I hope I'll continue to do that because I think it's an important part of the growth process, yes. asking questions yeah. and being curious. Yeah, that curious mind that is so important uh, as we uh, get into the Bible. You had to have a curious mind. Really great. How about you, Rick? Uh, actually, pretty similar to Isabella. There are a number of ways in which my science informs my faith, but I'd say primarily scientists are explorers, right? We're exploring. We're learning new things. We're really engaged and interested in learning new truths. And I bring that to my faith perspectives as well. That, and I would say a comfort with mystery, a a comfort with the unknown, and actually an appreciation and engagement with it. Sure. 
Have you ever uh, been tempted to walk away from your faith uh, because of what you've learned in science, Isabella? Um, n- no, and uh, <laughs> because I, as I said earlier, and again, it's hard for me to imagine actually a scientific discovery that will make me want to mm. walk away from mm. my faith. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the reason is because of the way I think about science and faith. Mm. Again, just like in science, if things, again, new understanding or new evidence, and it's inconsistent with how I thought about it, I just revise it. So I believe there's single universal truth that is consistent with science and faith. And if there's new pieces of evidence, I just, you know, encourages me to to wrestle with it and, and, and revise my thinking. Super good. Yeah. Yeah. What she said, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, if if we properly understand the domains of religion and science, they really don't conflict. They can't conflict because science properly understood does not address the transcendent. It does not address the divine. But science is really good, as I mentioned, at, at defining the natural world around us. And if we believe that all truth is God's truth, right, then, then again, they're really nicely complementary. So I can't imagine that there would ever be a scientific discovery that would force me to reject God because they, they operate in different domains. Right. There's a Christian author named Anne Lamont, and uh, she has said about prayer, there are only three kinds of prayers. Um, Help, thanks, and wow. Mm. And um, so let me ask you guys, have you ever been uh, in a place where because of your research, because of what you do in the lab, you just kind of have a wow moment with God? Mm. Isabella? Yeah, so to me, the fact that this extremely complex world is, can be described by a few relatively simple laws and that this entire complexity of the universe and life emerges from these simple laws. It just, I think it's mind-blowing. And uh, when I reflect on that, I'm just amazed in how brilliant God is. Uh, and related to this in my own work is that when I see, um, so the world is rational and discoverable, and we can uh, develop mathematical rules to describe the observations that we have and make predictions. Uh, when I reflect on that, uh, the rationality and the structure that God put in the world, that's my wow moments. Super. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, we, we know that wonder and awe are emotions that we experience when we are at the threshold of, of significant beauty, of grandeur, of mystery, of, of things that are just overwhelmingly complicated or powerful. And, um, and so I've had the good fortune of working outdoors in the natural world in some really beautiful places. So that's, that's yep. really great. Yep. But I think even more so, when I've finished an experiment, we've been working on it for years and the data are coming together and all of a sudden something clicks and I go, that's it. That's how the world, now I know something that nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's just awesome. It's just, wow. Uh, wow. Things come together, they fit together. And there's just this moment of like revelation that here's how this little bit of the world works. So, wow. That's yeah. really, really cool. And then, um, I think what I've learned from you, too, because Rick and I uh, go to Canada, canoe together. We spend a lot of time outside together. It's uh, this this thing about you don't have to to go anywhere to appreciate uh, what God can do. It's these little moments that happen from time. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I I think, um, well, there is now a science of awe. It's the science of everyday wonder. And one of the most important things we can do in our lives for our personal well-being and for connecting with transcendent, the transcendent, with connecting with God, is to take 
everyday moments of wonder. We can literally rewire our brains for the transcendent by taking a couple of 20-second pauses during the day and engaging with something that we find awesome or awe-inspiring, beautiful. Yeah, and I have picked up on that because in, in my life, and those of you who know me, uh, when, I, when I'm depressed and when I'm discouraged, mm-hmm. at night I go outside and I look up, and if I can see, uh, if I can see that, uh, I just, I mean, like, what can God do? He can do that. And the more you learn about astronomy, especially what we're learning from James Webb Telescope, the more we're learning about the size of the galaxy, the more I just kind of go, wow. wow. <laughs> wow. It's yeah. just uh, un- unbelievable. Well, uh, we could talk uh, all day long, uh, but I think uh, running out, I'm fighting the clock and we're running out of time. So uh, let's hear it uh, for Rick and Isabella coming up with us. <laughs> So the whole idea of today's uh, talk was uh, maybe to raise questions more than answer them, uh, and that might be frustrating for uh, many people. Again, I encourage you to go uh, to our website. I don't know if we can put the QR code uh, back up again. Pull your phones out. Take a picture of that. We have lots of resources on uh, our website. As If you are in a place where you are actually feel like you're deconstructing your faith, remember, don't do it in isolation. Do it in community, and uh, perhaps God will use the questions you have to actually lead you back uh, to him and so that you can grow also in your faith as you grow in your world of science. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, the two books that you have written, uh, the book of nature and the book of your word. We pray, Father, you would help us to be humble and to be curious and to be people who want to learn more about you through both of those books. We thank you, Father, for just who you are and the amazing things we learn about you as we look at the stars, we look at atoms, and as we look at your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. For the sake of his reputation, all God's people said,